0: Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Coming up, um, my good friend, Paul Begala. It's a great interview, fun interview, talking about his new book, You're Fired, the ultimate guide, the perfect guide to beating Donald Trump. Paul was one of the architects behind Bill Clinton's first run for office. He worked for, the, for, the, for Bill Clinton in the White House. He was also very close to Hillary and ran a pack that was pro-Hillary during the last campaign. So Paul's been around and he's part of the brain trust with uh, James Carville back in the day. And so he has some insight into possibly how to beat Trump. So stay tuned for my interview with Paul and uh, check that out. It has been another week of chaos. I can't believe we're already into the first week of August. Uh, Political season is ramping up. Uh, We're getting ready for conventions and COVID is still a problem. The president of the United States continues to spew nonsense and misinformation about it all. And it's incredibly frustrating. Meanwhile, we've passed the threshold of 157,000 dead Americans Thanks to this failed response by this administration, we were not supposed to be here at this point. Remember back in April or yeah, April or May, they were talking about, oh, you know, maybe 60,000. I mean, that's still too many, but we are way past that. And it's only getting worse. It's not getting better. It's getting worse, despite the bullshit that this administration tries to tell you. And finally, Dr. Fauci and even that Dr. Burks, who, if you are a regular listener of my podcast, you know, I am no fan of her, of hers. But even Dr. Burks is finally giving interviews, admitting that the virus spread is out of control. And, you know, the president attacked her now, you know, Fauci was on, on the shit list for a while there. And Dr. Burks was his favorite. Now she's on the shit list because she was honest during a Fox News interview that, yeah, the spread is out of control. Yeah, no kidding. Meanwhile, the president of the United States is giving interviews where he's still trying to convince people that everything is wonderful. It's, um, you know, he's surrounded by people. He's surrounded by these enablers that allow him to get away with this nonsense. And one of those people is the Surgeon General, Dr. Jerome Adams. If you follow me on Twitter, you know that recently, um, uh, last Sunday, I spent my afternoon in a Twitter battle with the Surgeon General of the United States. Yes, he actually DM'd me on Twitter because he was unhappy with a critical tweet that I put out. um, Responding to a video of him at some event, it was on C-span, and there was a clip where he says, not once but twice that the President looked like a badass in a mask, that he was down in Florida and it, where it was Trump country. and he the constituents there wanted him, his supporters, wanted him to know that he looked badass in a mask, and that he would tell them that. I mean, really, seriously, First of all, you're the freaking Surgeon General of the United States. What are you doing saying badass to the president of the United States or about the president at an official event? You sound like a jackass, okay? I mean, could you debase yourself any further? And it's not the first time that this guy has beclowned himself. Um, He's the same one that was talking about, you know, wear a mask and socially distance and do it for your big mama and your pop pop. And, you know, come on. He's also the same person who, back on February 29th, put out a tweet on his on his Twitter account saying, stop buying masks, people, in all, te- in all caps. Stop buying masks, that they're not that effective if you're not in the medical field. It's not that effective against coronavirus. What a bunch of bullshit. And I knew that back then. I didn't believe them when they said, you know, don't worry about getting masks and this and that. To hell with that. My family, we bought masks. We didn't buy them in bulk because you couldn't, but we bought enough to get ourselves by N95 masks early on because, you know, it just didn't make any sense. It was nonsensical. that something that was this transmissible even back then that a mask wouldn't help. Come on, bullshit. They just didn't want people buying up masks so that they, there'd be a shortage for medical personnel. That's the bottom line. And instead of, and I, so I called Jerome Adams out on this and I just simply said, like, I actually, I quoted a line from Mary Trump's book about, it's from chapter 14. If you haven't read Mary Trump's book, you should. This is probably the third podcast where I've mentioned it, where I finally finished it. And it's just, it really is illuminating in a lot of ways. And you see Trump's behavior and and now like I, I can reference like a reference point during his life through the Mary Trump book. I'm like, aha, that's exactly like he acted at this point, or that's what his father did to him for this. And you know, it's crazy. But anyway, so I quoted a line from page 197 of Mary Trump's book about how Trump has to have um, adulation all the time, that you, he has to be praised. And it's like a black hole because it's never enough because that emotionally damaged. So I I'm paraphrasing. So I, but I put the exact line and the page reference about how people do this. You know, he's surrounded by people who do this. And, and then I, you know, I put the throw up emoji and said, you know, Jerome Adams. And I put the throw up emoji because it was ridiculous. It was sickening. And I said, shameless enablers. Well, he took issue with that apparently. And apparently he has nothing else better to do on a Sunday afternoon than to troll people on Twitter. Um, as surgeon general during a global pandemic, next thing, you know, a couple minutes later, I get in it, I get an inbox message from him <laughs> and he's excoriating me for, um, for him, for his attempt at trying to get anyone to wear a mask. And it's his job to promote public health and this and that. Um, I am not going to go through the entire exchange because it went on for a couple of hours actually. Yeah. You heard me right. A couple hours all Saturday, Sunday afternoon with the Surgeon General on Twitter. But I am going to read one thing that I said to finally end this, because during this the, the back and forth, this exchange, he kept trying to rationalize and justify his sycophancy, which I have no time for. I'm over that. And I had just finished um, reading some things. And, and I was just over the fact that Trump, like Mary Trump said in her book, he has failed upward spectacularly his entire life. And he would not have been able to do that if it hadn't been for the people around him who enabled him the entire time, whether it was his father or like the people we have now that surround him, that allow him to get away with his bullshit. That's that's why the guys never held accountable for anything. So, uh, you know, which frustrates the hell out of me. I just don't understand that. So here we are, we have another another guy and another accomplished person who has thrown their entire career and their reputation away in order to give cover to Donald Trump, to cover for his incompetence and his intransigence. And I just don't have any patience for it. I'm over it. I'm over all of these people because really it's their fault. Trump is who he is and he showed us who he was. And But there are people that that enabled it and continue to. There, It's their fault whether it's Kellyanne Conway and her ilk and those people on the campaign to the Senate Republicans who let him get away with violating the constitution six ways from Sunday, never held accountable. So after Dr. Adams tried to, um, be a sanctimonious jerk to me talking about how, you know, you need to lead by example and it shouldn't be an us versus them. And you might have a different agenda. It's all on Twitter. If you want to go back and look at it on my Twitter feed, I put it there. And I also had put it on, um, on Instagram. And I finally just had enough because he actually said to me that he feels sorry for me and our country if our political differences are uh, too great that we can't lead by example. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm sorry, buddy, but you are lecturing the wrong person. You know, it's a little ill-timed and misdirected. That's that conversation should have been had with the man baby in the White House who refused to wear a mask and who downplayed the seriousness of this, of this virus. And it's cost tens of thousands of American lives. Not me. I've been wearing a mask since March. So, I had enough of this guy, so I'm just going to read you my the last line because the responses were a little lengthy because they needed to be because he needed to be checked. (laughs) And um, sometimes, you for those who listen to this podcast, you know that I refer to my grandmother sometimes or I talk about my grandfather, but my grandmother Gloria Setmeyer was a tough cookie, and she had a reputation when she was alive, she's, she's, she died 15 years ago, but she, when she was alive, she had a reputation of writing really, really strong, poignant letters. So if you pissed off Gloria Setmayer and you were on the receiving end of a Gloria Setmayer letter, you better watch out. Well, I've inherited her, um, her her wit and her strength in that respect. So, this was a glorious set mayor level response back to Dr. Adams, and I'm just going to read one last line and then you can get a sense of how this went. Actually, I'll I'm going to read two lines. I said there's something inherently wrong when the Surgeon General during a global pandemic Has to engage in such obsequious behavior to convince the leader of the free world to behave like an adult to save the lives of millions of Americans. Yet you lecture me? Unlike Trump, I don't need your effusive praise to act like a responsible adult. Unlike Trump, I've been leading by example by wearing a mask since March. Don't feel sorry for me. Feel sorry for the millions of people suffering thanks to this administration's failed response. Unlike you, when this is all over, I'll still have my self-esteem and credibility intact since I wasn't the one on bended knee, ass-kissing and enabling an incompetent sociopath while 157,000 Americans were dying. The end. That was part of my response to this fool. Do you know that he still responded to that? That is how insane these Trump people are. That really is how insane. I I couldn't believe it. Why would you even come back from that? (laughs) But no, he had to get the last word. And he actually tried to say that he he was going to continue to encourage the promotion of health. And that's part of his job. And quote, it's why I took time on a Sunday while preparing for my wife's cancer surgery tomorrow to respond to you. Both people who support and those opposed to the to the president are needed and need to be engaged to defeat the virus. Sorry, you don't agree. I'll keep working with everyone to promote health. Wear a mask. And I just was like, if this guy doesn't get the hell out of here with this. Oh, now he wants to be a martyr trying to going so far as to bring his wife's cancer surgery into this. Like like that was supposed to move me. I feel sorry for his wife and all. I don't know how serious the cancer is, but that's irrelevant to this conversation. Why are you, if that's really the case, then what the hell are you doing spending your time on a Sunday afternoon, quote, preparing for your wife's surgery, whatever that means, arguing with me on Twitter. So I'd simply said, you're still going? Thou doth protest too much. Whatever helps you sleep at night. The fact that this is the best use, that this is the best use of your time today says more about you than me. (laughs) He didn't say anything after that, but these people, man, I I just, there's really no, there's no low for them. Um, I took screenshots of this conversation and I put it all over. I put it on blast because I wanted people to see it. He didn't say it was off the record and I'm not a reporter. So it was fair game. That's our surgeon general folks. And that leads me into, um, (laughs) that leads me into my next issue, which is, Donald Trump did an interview with Jonathan Swan of Axios. Jonathan is a really tough reporter and he did a hell of a job. It's not easy to interview Donald Trump. If you've ever watched people try to interview him, he goes off on tangents. He doesn't finish sentences. He's rude. It's tough to pin him down. You have to fact check him in real time the way Chris Wallace did. He did a good job of that. Jonathan Swan had a bit more time because Axios does they have a weekly program on HBO so they have a little bit more time than than broadcast and um they released a preview of it last week and I can't remember if I mentioned it in the podcast last week I think I did the the preview to the interview was about the clip from from the interview uh concerning the Russian bounties on on our troops in Afghanistan and how Trump said that he didn't talk to Putin about it on their last phone call and how we just, you know, we do the same thing. And it was infuriating, just that one clip. Well, the whole interview finally aired and it was a doozy. It was 37 minutes of just infuriating obfuscation, denial, bullshit, incompetence. Um, It was, it's just, it was everything Donald Trump, the worst of Donald Trump on display. And The couple of areas, if you haven't seen it, you should watch it if you want, if you can stomach it. But it's just a good, it gives a good sense of this is the kind of person we're dealing with. The guy is off his rocker and is completely ignorant of what's going on. He lives in an alternate universe. He really does. And he does that in order to soothe himself. It's self-soothing, according to Mary Trump's book. This idea of this positive thinking of always, everything is the the biggest, the greatest, the best, and it's going to be, it's doing beautifully and all this nonsense, the superfluous nonsense that he uses. It's just a self-soothe because he can't process um, negativity or being challenged or anything because that looks, that's looked upon as weakness from his father. So he does, that's why he acts like that and says stupid asinine things. Like when people are dying, he's like, oh, we're doing really well. No, we're not. It's demonstrably false, you know? So there were a couple areas. So he was talking about uh, the COVID deaths and he said something that was just so calloused. I, I, I couldn't believe it. And, it, you know, there was so much bullshit happening that you might've missed it. But he said when Jonathan Swan was fact-checking him about things and he was like, yeah, but there's like 500 people a day dying. And, and Trump was like, well, yeah, people are dying, but it is what it is. It is what it is? You callous bastard. It is what it is. No it's not. It doesn't have to be this way. Again, he's pushing off deflecting any responsibility. We are where we are because of the failed response of this administration and him personally not leading by example by pushing wearing masks by, you know, he didn't do that. The whole hydroxychloroquine nonsense, you know, can we inject each other, you know, inject disinfectant. I mean, it's been nuts. But he takes no responsibility, never does, never has his whole life. But it is what it is. That was one of many infuriating things that he said. He also um, was asked about systemic racism and policing. And of course, he went off on the tangents about Portland and Antifa and all that. And okay, that's fine. But Jonathan Swan asked him because he acknowledged that the George Floyd death was horrible. And Jonathan Swan was like, yeah, but there's a disproportionate amount of black men being killed in police custody or by police. And he goes, oh, well, white people are killed too by, and more of them. That's true because there's more white people in the country and by numbers, but proportionally, this is a problem. And I've come around on this. I, I, I've been a bit flippant in the past about those numbers, but I, I'm starting to recognize that there's more of a problem than I did before. I will admit that. And he said, so Jonathan Swan was like, do do you think there's systemic racism in policing? And he wouldn't answer it. Well, he goes, well, you know, I don't like that. I don't like that there's, um, you know, this, I guess, referring to the fact that black men seem to die in police custody a bit too often, more than they should. And it was disproportionate. And so he said, well, I don't like that. And Jonathan Swan was like, well, why not? Like, why? Why do you think that is? And he was like, I don't know why. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, he would not admit to any kind of systemic racism. And then toward the end of the interview, he brings up, Jonathan Swan brings up John Lewis. And we all know that the famed civil rights leader, John Lewis, the congressman, passed away recently. And there was a beautiful homegoing ceremony for him. He had, he had a chance to lie in state in the, in the U.S. Capitol also in his hometown, also in Georgia, they had this uh, beautiful ceremony. Three living presidents were there eulogizing him, George Bush, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama, who didn't pay any respects to John Lewis. Surprise, surprise, Donald Trump. He didn't go and pay respects when he was lying in state in the Capitol. Um, Joe Biden and Dr. Jill Biden did, of course, but Trump did not. He couldn't be bothered, right? Well, he was given an opportunity here in this interview to say something at something nice, something respectful of John Lewis. You could disagree with his politics. I didn't agree with all the politics of John Lewis, but he was indisputably a hero. This man's life was extraordinary. I mean, he put literally shed blood for civil rights in this country. He is a hero and will go down in history as one, as an important player in the civil rights movement in this country. No doubt about it. He's heroic. What did Donald Trump say? He said, well, you know, he didn't go to my inauguration. He made a big mistake. He didn't go to my inauguration. And, uh, you know, I've never met the guy and I mean, totally disrespectful. And he hemmed and hawed and repeated multiple times how he never showed up to his inauguration, didn't come to any of the state of the union addresses. And so, and Jonathan Swan was like, you don't have anything to say about his life. Or his, you know, his accomplishments. Did did you find him impressive? And he goes, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't think so. I, you know, I find some people impressive and some people not impressive. Like he could not give any credit whatsoever to John Lewis. That was disgraceful, absolutely disgraceful. But not unsurprising. He's a racist. Um, what else was in that interview? Oh, he, uh, the mail and voting thing. So in my last podcast and in a couple of other ones, but I've talked about this often because now as we're about 90 days or so from the election, there's more and more conversation about the election process and the integrity of it. And I'm worried about a lot of stuff. I hate to say, um, and Trump has really been hammering away at this whole, there's going to be fraud and because the polls are terrible for him. He's losing in places he shouldn't, um, Texas is in play. Georgia's in play. You know, Pennsylvania looks like it's slipping away. Michigan, he's losing by double digits. It's the the political landscape looks terrible for Trump right now. So he's just throwing anything out there to see what sticks to try to just wreak complete havoc. And he's gone on and on about mail-in voting versus absentee balloting. And last episode, I explained there really is functionally no difference. There really isn't. Some states you have to have an excuse in order to cast your ballot absentee by mail. Other states have all-mail-in balloting, where you can just you request a ballot, you fill it out, and you mail it in before election day. (laughs) So that's basically the same thing. And more and more states, because of COVID, are going to no-fault absentee balloting, which is basically the same thing. Well, Trump was called out on him. You know, he cast an absentee ballot. Yeah. And and like 12 of his top deputies have also. It's a very common thing. And there's virtually no fraud. Bits and pieces here and there, yes, but there's virtually no fraud. And last week, my guest, Ellie Honig, talked about how Bill Barr was being an accessory to this whole bullshit scheme to try to discredit mail-in balloting. And how out of 60,000 cases that are prosecuted by the Department of Justice, how many were prosecuted for mail fraud? Like How many were mail fraud balloting cases? Like zero, maybe one or two. He was like, but it's virtually none. So this is all just a ruse to try to create confusion and distrust in the upcoming election. Now, I know people who listen to this podcast aren't going to fall for it, but there are a lot of people who may. But here's the thing. Republicans have a very robust get out the vote mail-in absentee balloting operation. This has been something that is part of campaigns and has been for decades. I when I worked on a congressional campaign in Florida many moons ago, we had someone who focused strictly on absentee balloting and making sure that, you know, older people who can't get to the polls that they signed up and requested an absentee ballot. There's money invested in that infrastructure. So Republicans were getting pissed off because after Trump tweeted last week about how the election could be rigged, some Republicans were like, all right, you got to stop this because now you're hurting us. Our people mail in vote, you fool. So the Senate's on the line here and in Florida, there's always all kinds of problems in Florida. Okay. Okay. Florida is like the worst state. Florida, remember in 2000, the whole hanging chads and all that. I mean, Florida has had problems administering elections for years. They have elected um, uh, election officials. They're usually elected in the county. Broward and Dade County have had problems over and over again with their people. It's it's a mess. Well, Trump has all of a sudden had a change of heart. He turned around and tweeted that, okay, mail-in balloting is actually okay. <laughs> in Florida though, only in Florida because Florida has cleaned up their act and they're great, <laughs> but everywhere else it's fraud. How absurd, how absurd. Well, you know why he changed his tune? Yeah, because he got his ass handed to him by Republicans that said, stop this. You're going to hurt us in the election. You're going to suppress our own people from voting. And Florida is a state that's very close. And if he doesn't win Florida, he's not going to win the re-election. So, <laughs> It's so duplicitous. I can't, I just can't even. I really can't. It's, uh, just pay attention. As my grandfather would say, just pay attention and don't fall for the okie doke, which is what my husband says. <laughs> um, mail and is okay now. I just, it's just, I can't. Something else that, um, that happened this week that we need to keep paying attention to, um, is the fact that the Manhattan DA, Cy Vance in a filing this week, it was revealed that the investigation into Trump and the Trump organization is actually bigger than just the hush money payments that Michael Cohen engaged in that landed him in jail, among other things. That It's actually bigger than just that. It looks as though the Manhattan DA is investigating the Trump organization for banking and insurance fraud. Now, This is something that um, folks have been speculating about for quite some time. And because it's a state investigation, Trump can't pardon people. He can't really interfere in this because he doesn't have any power over what the states do. He can't self-pardon. He can't, you know, none of that, because those powers don't extend to the states. And this case recently that was, decided in the Supreme Court, you know, Trump's been fighting releasing his tax returns. And the Manhattan DA subpoenaed the Mazars uh, accounting firm, which is Trump's accounting firm, to get his corporate and personal taxes to to see what the hell's going on here. And they fought that. And the case that went to the Supreme Court um, that was recently ruled on basically said that it needs to go back to the lower court but that the trump argument that he has absolute immunity from this because he's president is is absurd and not based in law and that's not that's not an effective defense so this needs to go back to the lower court you can try and argue something else about why they shouldn't release this but that absolute immunity stuff is bs so that's not going to work well in the meantime because they're now trying to go back in the lower court and say, no, we still shouldn't have to release this information. The Manhattan DA, these court proceedings are are public information. Now, grand jury proceedings are secret, but some of these court proceedings are public. And during this filing, we found out that it's actually a much larger investigation into Trump's potential corrupt behavior. Now, we all know that his entire business career has been full of shady business deals and God knows what. Don't forget that in October of 2018, the New York Times did a 14,000 word extensive investigative report on decades of the Trump family's very questionable, perhaps illegal tax schemes and everything else. And then we found out recently that the source for that information was Mary Trump. And she was able to hand over some of that financial information because of the lawsuit she filed against Donald Trump over her grandfather's will when they were disinherited uh, because of their father, Freddie Trump, who passed away at 42. He wasn't included in the will. Neither were the kids and it was a whole thing. And in that process, they obtained financial information and she finally, she gave that to the New York Times and they won a Pulitzer Prize for that. In any other administration, that would have been um, career ending for Trump, for his presidency. But no, of course, because this guy, <laughs> there's so many things happening that it just gets lost in, in the fray. And it's, um, but it's, it was, they did such an amazing job that it looks as though the Manhattan DA's office has taken some of that reporting and it's part of their investigation. What does Trump do? Well, what's alleged is that he has overinflated his properties, his properties and his own assets and worth in order to secure loans and insurance policies for properties. Michael Cohen said as much when he testified in front of Congress as well. And we also don't know what he told authorities, um, when he cut his deal either, but it looks as though these things are legit enough for investigation. We also know, um, that other public interest groups, I think it was, um, what's the name of them now? Um, The name's escaping me and I don't know why, but they do a lot of public interest investigation into public corruption. And the other accusation, not in this case directly, but the other accusation against Trump over the years has been that when it's convenient, he undervalues his properties to get a lower tax rate. <laughs> so he overinflates when he needs to get bank loans and insurance coverage, and underinflates the the value when it comes tax time. This is fraud, all of it. We could never get away with this as average citizens. So, hopefully, the chickens are coming home to roost on this, and um, we'll have to stay tuned. Will there be an indictment or anything before the election? Highly doubt it. Highly doubt it. You don't want the prosecution to be tainted by politics, because that would be the accusation but, um, there's nothing to say won't happen after the election. And, um, Trump can't pardon his way out of that because it's state remember. So there's that. And then finally, before I bring in my guest, Paul Bagala, who's my very good friend, my favorite Democrat, and he's written a new book called you're fired, um, about how to beat Donald Trump. It's great. Um, before I bring Paul in, um, you know, the, 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 Veep stakes are still going on. Biden was supposed to name who, who his vice president by now, but they've pushed it back to next week. So by the time this drops, we'll be a couple days away from the announcement. And um, I just want it to be over with already. There's been speculation for months and months, you know. So people have been asking me, and the, it looks like the top names are Kamala Harris, Susan Rice, Karen Bass from California, Congresswoman, um, I still like Val Demings. I've become a big fan of hers. Um, I've been lukewarm on everybody else. I have my, I'm concerned about a few of them for a few reasons. Um, Karen Bass, I think, should be completely disqualified. I, I can't believe that her name is even floating around as being in a, in the top tier. She's said many pro Castro things, and she's you know sub- opened up a, a Scientology church. She was at an event for that, and. But that's neither here nor there. But the Cuba comments, the Castro comments, um, that will just, you can forget about Florida. There's a huge Cuban population there and that—that um, that is just a, a no-go. So among other things, I'm just surprised that she's in the top tier. I, I, I really don't think he's going to pick her. Uh, Susan Rice, I mean... know she's smart she's got foreign policy experience she's never run for office though which is problematic you don't know how people are going to react on the campaign trail and talk about throwing you right into the fire your first campaign is for vice president tough I don't know Um, and her foreign policy record I think that the Republicans will exploit that nobody wants to relitigate Benghazi and Iran and all those things which will come up Um, maybe more secretary of state for her but I don't know Kamala Harris there's been some oppo some people have been running interference they they you know too too ambitious and things like that and people caught shit for that saying all well, women why do women have to be too ambitious for men they're just uh, assertive and the whole that whole argument but you know Kamala rubs people the wrong way some people and that's a problem you know uh, I I you know I've seen some moments where I like her and other moments where I don't, I don't know. It's, uh, I wouldn't be, I like Val Demings. Let's just say that. (laughs) Um, could Kamala handle the job? Yes. She's run for president before she's a Senator. I think she'd do well in the debates against, against, uh, Pence, but I don't know, you know, um, but Val Demings, I think she would as a former police chief, she would inoculate, Biden from Trump's attempts at this whole law and order and, you know, crime is going to burn down our cities and all this and that. She's a former police chief. You put up ads and you put her, you know, in her Harley, she rides a Harley and you know, she's got an amazing American story. You put her in ads in her police chief uniform and talking about being tough on crime. It's, it, makes, it looks absurd to, to attack the Biden ticket as being soft on crime. I don't think so. So, uh, you know, I, I think she'd have a platform. She'd be a good bridge with the social justice movement that's going on in this country. And she'd all, she'd have a platform immediately as vice president and she'd be good on, on domestic issues because she's a member of Congress. So I like Val. Um, you know, Biden put himself into a, backed himself into a corner by saying he was going to pick a woman months ago, which I wish he hadn't done um, because things have changed so dramatically since he made that pledge. And now you're kind of stuck with what you got, as opposed to possibly other people like Andrew Cuomo or another governor who's really done an amazing job during COVID. And those people are not under consideration because, you know, Biden made this pledge. so. So we'll see. I don't know. You know, he's looking good now in the polls. Do no harm. But let's see what my good friend Paul Bagala has to say all about this since he's written a whole new book on how to defeat Donald Trump. So um, stay tuned. Up next is Paul Bagala. On this week's episode of Honestly Speaking, I am so thrilled to bring my favorite Democrats of all time, my buddy, my pal, Paul Bagala, who has written a new fantastic book called You're Fired, The Perfect Guide to Beating Donald Trump. And it is a great read. Paul is my, my colleague over at CNN. He's a contributor there, which is where I've gotten to know him over the years. He's also well known to folks as being one of the brain trust uh, part of Bill Clinton's run in '92, along with James Carville, he worked in the White House for Bill Clinton. Also worked on the Hillary campaign, and he's learned some lessons from 2016. And he talks about it in his book. And I'm so happy to bring him on, Paul Begala. Welcome back to Honestly Speaking with Tara.
1: Tara, thank you. My favorite Republican. <laughs> this is a. Uh, I wish we were together. I know. Uh, to- I really have always enjoyed sitting with you on set, and I, I wish the viewers and listeners could see. Like, during the commercials, you always either crack me up or have some, like, brilliant insight, and I'm like, oh, I wish I'd said that. <laughs> uh, so I just – I really appreciate your your perspective and your brains. Oh and your personality, too too which, tight. by the way, is totally pleasant, and um, uh, that's a really nice – that goes a long way, as you know, in television because – sometimes a few people
0: can be difficult this is true and i appreciate that because a lot of people who don't know me outside of what they see on tv think that i'm like really vicious and because of my debating skills and i'm like that's not all of who i am i am a jersey girl we're tough broads here but i'm actually kind of (laughs) cool so thank you for co-signing that (laughs) i can i can vouch for that
1: i've often thought like the greatest show in cable would be just to put one of those like little lipstick cams in the green room and just (laughs) film us i mean i've had really deep interesting conversations like with rick santorum a a brother catholic of Uh mine but we kind of don't agree on very much but sometimes we do we'll talk about faith i mean i'm a great believer in trying to learn from people who are different from me And and you know it's what i love about CNN, frankly, I don't mean to do a commercial for our network, but they are very, very good about bringing lots of different perspectives. That is,
0: that is very true. And um, Rick Santorum is very upset with me and has been for four years running now because we were, on, we were on Bill Maher together in 2016, and it didn't go well for Rick, let's just say that. And- <laughs> And I was in no mood to give anyone any passes that was enabling Donald Trump. And Rick, a lot of people don't realize this, but Rick Santorum wrote a book about blue collar America, about the white working class being forgotten and frustrated. And Bill and um, Bill Clinton, well, he he understood that, understood that also, which is what helped him get into office. But Donald Trump really used that book as a roadmap to bullshit his way into the White House. So I blame Rick Santorum for it because he wrote the damn playbook for Donald Trump to get elected, and he was very he, he upset did. with me. It was me. called
1: blue collar, blue collar conservative. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, the the difference is I really disagree with Rick and ran two campaigns against him. Yeah, yeah. One, one, one,
0: Right. Well, but, I mean, uh, you know, but, I I had no patience for for the Republicans like him at that time. This was the summer of 2016 in August, so it was clear that Trump was. The, who the Republicans were choosing and someone like Rick Santorum who I had worked with years prior on issues like opportunity zones and outreach right. in minority communities and and you know he's a good Christian guy and I was like Really, Rick? So I called him to the carpet on his shit and he didn't like it. And he has he hasn't (laughs) spoken to me in years, (laughs) even in the CNN green room and things like he is so mad at me. (laughs) I think it's funny, uh, actually. But yeah. Oh, well, you know,
1: I didn't know he was a snowflake. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, if you actually care about blue collar America. And you do, and I do, and I suspect Rick does in his I way. Come from that. I'm sure he does. Well, then you should oppose Trump. Right. Because he has been a wrecking ball. That's on right. Collar. I mean, he told me to jump in the book, but I, I outline chapter and verse if you look at what has happened to uh, middle class, working class Americans, even before the COVID crash. Um, This guy's policies have actually been all about Wall Street and CEOs, and he's been hammering uh, uh, factory workers and farmers and shop workers and and, and secretaries and and all the middle-class folks, many of whom voted for him. So if you actually care about blue-collar America, you should really want to fire Trump. And I I do think actually Democrats are very smart to nominate Biden, who has – the
0: best kind of middle-class
1: sensibility. You know, he is Joe Lunchbucket.
0: That's right. Um, He's the Pennsylvania guy. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Grew up in Right. Uh, That's actually a great transition to, to, to what's in your book because watching now that we, I mean, we sat together in horror in 2016, well, after 2016, um, because you were working with the Hillary campaign, but, Um, at what was going on. And now that we've had four years of of watching what Donald Trump has done, um, I will be the first to say that Hillary was right. And, um, you know, everyone knows that I was no fan of Hillary Clinton's, but she, the predictions of what Donald Trump would do and his personality flaws and all those things, she was right about that. But in your book, you talk about what you guys got wrong, because obviously she didn't win. Was the book c- cathartic for you? Because I kind of <laughs> got a sense of that when you are writing, when you were like, when I was reading it. I'm like, <laughs> I feel like this was Paul's way of being like, I screwed up in 2016. I know I did. This is why. And this is how we fix it. Was it cathartic for you? Well, yes. And uh, instructive. You know, uh, when I was in the
1: government, you've been in the government. One of the great things mm-hmm. that the U.S. military does is... Success or failure. After every operation, they do an after-action report, and if it's just glossy, you get in trouble. They really are rigorous, the good officers are. They're really rigorous about analyzing what went right, what went wrong, and why and how to make it better the next time. Um, And so I owed that, I felt, to my readers. Uh, I was part of the super PAC, separate from Hillary's campaign, mm-hmm. that was it, – it had, it, it had been President Obama's super PAC or the pro-Obama super PAC before then. And so I'd helped President Obama get reelected. Our job then was to run the negative ads against Mitt Romney. So we rolled it over into Hillary, became the PAC that was supposed to run negative ads against Trump, which you'd think would be very easy. But here's <laughs> what I got wrong. I made the attacks only about Trump and his character, not about voters and their lives. And I draw the contrast to Romney. We didn't even have a discussion about running character ads attacking Romney because uh, agree or disagree with his policies, he's a person of upstanding moral character. He's a devoted family man. He's a person of powerful faith. Uh, he's never had a whiff of scandal around him. So it didn't even enter our minds. We never even said, well, let's attack Romney's
0: character. Oh, come on. So full we- of women the elevator in oh, his that's house yeah
1: <laughs> it's
0: like, messing with house, you paul that just, that's just
1: mr moneybags yeah um, but so we attacked him right for his business deals um, which many of them were good we didn't exactly have time to run ads about the good ones but there are some that really smelled <laughs> and so we use it but it was about people's lives, right it was about people in the middle class and what would happen to them under the set of policies I lost sight of that with Trump. I was distracted by his spectacularly terrible moral character. So the things he said about women against African-Americans, against Mexican-Americans, against Muslim-Americans, against disabled-Americans, <laughs> against POWs, for goodness yeah. sake. We ran one long. ad, for example, jo- Joe Kernan. Joe Kernan, a former governor of Indiana, a friend of mine I'm blessed to say. Joe was a POW in Vietnam with John McCain. He's an American hero, and uh, I called him when Trump said this about McCain, of course, Joe is tough as ever and just exploded in rage. And so we sent a camera crew out there and we filmed war hero POW Joe Kernan defending others, not himself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Sorry about that. That's okay. Sorry. So it's
0: okay. It to ed- be edited. We're, <laughs>
1: thank you. But we, we ran an ad where Governor Kernan talks about how Trump is unfit to lead troops. And I think that was right. I think we see what he's done now, turning a blind eye to Putin using terrorists to target our troops. Mm-hmm. I think Governor Kernan Joe is exactly right. But we didn't connect it up. See, we didn't even say we could not imagine that he would allow Putin to target our troops with terrorists. But we, I didn't connect it up to people's lives. I didn't say your job, your health care, your uh, brother or sister in the military, is at risk. Mm -hmm. We just said, look at him, isn't he terrible? Look at these controversial things he says. And I don't want to make that mistake again. The election has to be about the voters, not about Mr. Trump. It doesn't excuse him. Right. But we have to show people that the things that Trump says and does can affect their lives. And that's what COVID did.
0: Well, in your book, you talk about we're going to get to COVID in a second. Right away, you talk about Bill Clinton's first law of politics that you, you know, that you learned and and it sounds to me like you kind of didn't apply it that that time around and the what is the first law of politics it's about the is lives of poli- the voters right
1: exactly politics is always about the lives of voters never about the lives of the candidates and that's both for good and for for, for negatives in other words um i watched bill clinton defeat bob Kerry, a medal of honor recipient george hw bush a war hero and then bob dole another war hero um They had stellar personal biographies. They were remarkable patriots, but it was about their lives, not about the voters' lives. And Clinton always made it about voters' lives, um, both on the positive and on the negative side. And that's something I lost sight of, and it's easy to do. I think it happens to a lot of us because no one has ever encountered a person with character this low. I am not kidding. Because we had the super PAC, we had tens of millions, almost Probably 190 million dollars. I had all the options.
0: 190 million dollars. Million. That's the entire Clinton campaign in the
1: general election. We had 50 million for for Bill Clinton. Right. 28 years ago. Right. So we had all the money in the world, and we had all the research, and I read all the books. And I'm not kidding you, Tara. I have never come across a single good thing he's ever done, a single selfless act. I could give you 50 about Romney or Mm -hmm. Bush. Easily and again, I disagree with them politically, but these are good people who I think have the wrong policy ideas. That's a completely different debate than than Mr. Trump, who is just a horrible person who also has terrible policy ideas. <laughs> but I think we should focus on the latter. Democrats should focus on the latter, not the former, they should say. He wants to cut your your Medicare. He wants to do away with your right to have health insurance for your pre existing condition. He, he uh, has trade policies that have hammered farmers and really crushed rural America. No, would make it about them, not about
0: Trump. You give credit to your big brother for helping you reach that epiphany.
1: Yeah, my brother Dave is one of the smartest people I know and a very successful businessman in construction in Houston. He's riding me around in his pickup uh, on Loop 610, so we weren't going very fast. It's always bumper to bumper.
0: That's true, I've been there.
1: (laughs) And uh, he he voted for Hillary. I mean, he's not that political, but he's a businessman. But, you know, of course, has met Hillary. He knows her and loves her. He voted for. But he he turned me and said, what you didn't get is that Trump's not a politician. He's a TV star. And when Hillary said things, people saw a politician and a lying politician. And when Trump says things, he's just
0: a bullshit artist.
1: And I thought, oh, my God, he's right.
0: Yep. Yep. (laughs) And and that's the part of it that I. I was surprised that it didn't resonate in 2016. And I, I, you know, I'm still, I I still have different opinions as to whose fault that is. Um, You know, I think it's partially the campaign's fault for not, focusing on those things, partially the media's fault for letting him get away with all kinds of stuff, um, kind mm-hmm. of falling for the Trump trap, as you called it. Um, and uh, and I also just think that the Republicans, my folks over there, royally screwed up because they didn't take Trump seriously enough. They underestimated right. his ability to manipulate people in large uh, numbers and by the time they realized, holy shit, this guy actually has momentum. It was way too late. He'd already defined them and undercut them, and they no longer had the credibility to take him on. Um, if they, if my Republican brethren in the primary had done what you talked about uh, doing. Early on defining him, um, you say, you said Trump is an awful person of the lowest character and he had a lot more business deals that screwed working people. We should have filmed the, the plumbing contractors. He drove out of business when he wouldn't pay his bills. The housekeepers and cooks and blackjack dealers. Who lost their jobs when his casinos went bankrupt, the undocumented workers he used and abused at his golf courses, the veterans who lost tens of thousands of dollars on a worthless degree from Trump University. We should have shown how Trump has hurt people like you. Republicans should have done that and Democrats should have done that. And I'm hoping that the Biden campaign understands this and starts to do that more um we started to talk about coronavirus since that's in the news now and then I'm going to talk about farmers because I think that people don't realize what the hell's happened to our poor farmers out in the in, in, in right. America. Um but coronavirus is what's is what's plaguing the country right now and literally killing people and Trump's ineptitude and in tra- and and just the intransigence with the whole thing has uh, contributed to that. Um do you will re- do you think that the coronavirus could be that thing That people finally look and say, well, this is impacting my family. Because like you said, it's about their lives.
1: I think that's right. I think coronavirus changes everything because it takes away Trump's two greatest assets. First, that he has made politics spectacle. And so when he was, uh, it, it was almost as if being president and having a fight with Nancy Pelosi was like when he had a fight with Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> like, oh, it's interesting. These are two right. famous people screaming at each other, but it has no effect on my life. That's no longer the case. Politics now is not just spectacle. It's my life. It's my mom's life. Literally, just before I, I, I we got on this call, I talked to a friend of mine who's a Marine. And recovering from COVID. His wife is an ER nurse. I didn't even know he was sick. I was just checking in with him. Oh, God and he said, he said, you know, I got the play. And here's a guy. He's serving our country in uniform. His wife is serving our country in an emergency room. And, of course, he, he got the he got the, the COVID. And I have no idea of his politics. I'm not saying that he's for or against Mr. Trump. But we now know that politics is not just, as I famously said, show business for ugly people. <laughs> it is life and death yep. in your world. That's number one. When, so politics is no longer spectacle. That's bad for Trump. And number two, he has lost his ability to divert our attention. He uses division for diversion, right? He says it, 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 he doesn't care about Confederate statues or Confederate flags. He doesn't care about Colin Kaepernick. He cares about using racial and ethnic divisions to distract us mm-hmm. from his spectacularly failed policies. And it works. It no longer work. works with COVID. Uh, my guest
0: on the last episode, uh, Professor Jen Mershia, I don't know if you're familiar with her. She wrote a book that's out now also called Demagogue for President, where she breaks down all of the techniques that Trump uses rhetorically to manipulate people and the whole otherism thing. Um, the cultural division and all of that is a technique that he specifically deploys and has been successful with it thus far. We just talked about this. That-
1: that, that's amazing. That's yeah. and that's that is what he does,
0: but with COVID he
1: can't. Right. He cannot. Uh, on our network, CNN, there's that purple box on the right hand side of the screen almost all the time, counting up. Good God! You know, 140,000 people dead. Hundreds of millions infected. Um, you can't turn the camera away from that, even when he picks a fight. With a football player. (laughs) Even when he picks a fight with Bubba Wallace, a beloved NASCAR driver, Mm -hmm. um, he can't do it. And so he's lost his ability to use division as diversion, and he's lost his ability to convince us that politics is just spectacle. And so when – the more it becomes deadly serious, the worse it is for Trump because – his personal piggish behavior distracts us from actually how really bad he is at the job. <laughs> you know, at least yes. Nixon was good at the job. When right. Nixon had poor ethics, but he was actually really good at right. running the country. You know, <laughs> this guy is so inept, uh, and and his his division distracts us from that sometimes. Your
0: your book, as I was reading it, it was such a pleasure to read because I know you and I know your voice, and the book is written in your very witty. Um, down-to-earth, down-home style in the way you present things. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so I can hear you but as I'm reading this. And and um, I'm not big into audiobooks because I actually like to read and make notes and things. Some other people like mm-hmm. audiobooks. But if you have this, is it, it's going to be out in audiobook, I'm assuming. Um, <laughs> it's great it to hear is. from you because you're you're hilarious. What, something that actually made me laugh out loud is, uh, in the beginning of the book where you talk about experience mattering, and you said, it turns out you can't lie away a virus any more than you can pray away the gay. <laughs> <laughs> right, you so you. and <laughs> Intro. We, we, Then the virus just doesn't. Run. He even
1: gave it a nickname. of some of them racist, uh, and it turns out the virus didn't stop just for getting a racist nickname. Right. You know, right. it, it, the stuff that he has used to great effect, whether it was against uh, Senator Rubio or Senator Cruz or Secretary Clinton, just doesn't work against a virus, and it's. I I really – I say this on the air. I really mean it. I hope he watches. This is one of those situations in which President Clinton taught me. The best policy is going to be the best politics. Just go ahead and do the right thing. Listen to the docs and the nurses and the epidemiologists and the scientists, and it'll be temporary pain but long-term gain, and you will be beloved for that. And he just can't do it. He keeps falling back on insults and racial division and all the things that, that are just at his core.
0: Well, you use something uh, in the book, you refer to the Maya Angelou test, um, where you said, I've learned that, where she says, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. How does Donald Trump make his voters feel? And you say, fear, fearful, aggrieved, angry, but also part of a tribe, respected, valuable, even patriotic. The way that he takes these issues and uses those feelings like that that power of how do you how does it make you feel i think works for him and against him you know i think it worked for him up until this point and i don't know if it's going to continue to work for him because now we're literally talking about life and death which is why he's trying to pivot from coronavirus to this law and order bullshit and trying to focus in on a couple of idiots out there in portland and seattle who are um you know rioting and destroying property okay yeah they're knuckleheads and that should be handled the whole country is not burning to the ground on fire but if you watch fox news That's what he'd have you believe, because he's pivoting from the fact that people are dying on his watch and it's his fault.
1: That's right. But it's it's not going to work this time because the virus is so catastrophic, because he's mishandled it so terribly.
0: You know, we're killing his people. His base now. Well, it is. It's
1: disproportionately impacting uh, older Americans, people of color who are not very supportive of Trump, but, but also uh, communities now. It's moved to, like, to my beloved Texas, which he won by almost 10 points, mm-hmm. and Florida. now he's in trouble in Texas. Yes. Florida, Arizona. Um, this, should, I, I have to say I did not anticipate this. I did. I was worried Trump might win. I wasn't like a complete denier, but I had no idea ever... That a pandemic would be used to divide us. When when, when I I was driving past the Canadian when the plane hit on nine eleven mm. on the Tuesday morning, I saw the plane hit. It it it, it reverberated my car, the shock waves. I was in wow. a big SUV, and immediately uh, I I tried to call nine one one. It was jammed. I called actually the the AP bureau in the White House. Ron Fournier, the reporter, because I wanted to get word to the White House mm-hmm. right away that the Pentagon was under attack. So I, I told Fournier. And then I, I went home, and I emailed Carl Rove and Karen Hughes, who are total political adversaries of mine, but they're good people, and they're my friends. I knew them from Texas, and we rally together as a country when we're under attack, and Trump should have done that. He should have immediately reached out to uh, you know Nancy Pelosi and, and the rest of the Democrats. He should have reached out to Angela Merkel and to, to the rest of the civilized world. He should have brought us together. Instead of this nonsense that somehow wearing a mask is a sign of weakness, that uh, COVID is a hoax, or the Democrats' reaction, in fairness to him, he didn't say the disease was. He said our reaction to it. The Democrats were reacting so uh, uh, strongly because it was a hoax, because their reaction was a hoax. Um, well, we've never had that before. We've never had a politician use a national crisis to divide us, a president, a president. Usually that's our unifying figure, mm-hmm. as Bush was after 9-11 as Reagan was after the Challenger explosion in the Beirut bombing by terrorists in Lebanon, as Clinton was after uh, Oklahoma City, as Obama was after the murders at Mother Emanuel Church, there are times when presidents step up. And all of our lifetimes, in both parties, we've seen our presidents do that, and we rally to that president. Trump should be at 75% right now, but he's just so stinking bad at the job. He's at 40, 38.
0: He's incapable he's incapable i've uh, right. i've uh, almost finished mary trump's book i've been um that's what i've been doing during this COVID. i've been reading lots of books <laughs> um oh I'm, i've almost finished with mary trump's book and I, I have to tell you it it's things that we kind of knew already those of us who observed you don't need to have a phd in psychology to figure out that trump is a really screwed up person emotionally but her book puts it in great great detail from from his childhood Um, What it was like for him growing up with a functional sociopath bastard of a father and an emotionally unavailable mother and his inability to have any empathy whatsoever, because if he did, it would show weakness and that would hurt him because of his the way his parents were. They were such terrible parents. And it's translated all the way up. I mean, someone with this kind of disordered personality has no business being in a position that requires you to have empathy and to understand Mm -hmm. that it's bigger than yourself. He's incapable of it. Now, that doesn't excuse it. That's why we've got to get him the hell out of there and we have to hold him responsible because he was never held responsible growing up for anything he did. Um, Now we're all paying the price for it and expecting him to turn into someone that all of a sudden is going to be empathetic and like be a leader and be a president it ain't happening and you know these republicans who seem to think that they keep telling him well you know he needs to do it's not going to happen it's a clear choice america it's a clear choice biden who actually has this and is his life experience makes him uniquely qualified and cut out to be that healer now um do you think the biden campaign is uh, you know, the Biden in the basement criticisms and things. Do you think the Biden campaign is doing what they should do t- to beat Trump now? I-, I get concerned that they're still being a little too passive. But what do you think? You're the damn genius. <laughs> he's,
1: uh, no, I, I, I like what he's doing right now. And I don't have a relationship with the campaign. They're all my buddies and stuff. You know, I know all of them. But I, I think they are doing the right thing. First, you know, Lee Atwater used to quote Napoleon. Lee Atwater. The yes, the yeah, Republican,
0: Republican who's responsible for the Southern strategy that we're still paying the price for now. But go ahead. But he was good. At- and and elected
1: elected Vice President Bush, yep. the first vice president to follow a two term president since Martin Van Buren. It's only happened twice in history. It's very hard to do to win a third term. And uh, Lee pulled it off. And Lee famously used to quote Napoleon, never interrupt your opponent when he's destroying himself.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: And I think that that maxim is probably like in, on, on the wall of the Biden basement. Uh, so that's the, the first thing. But second, he, it, the, the, this question we talked about before about relevance. Joe is dialed in on what's relevant in my life. He doesn't chase every shiny object. It helps that he has experience. It helps that he's been in the Oval Office. It helps that he's been in a situation room with the fertilizer hitting the ventilator. Um, So he's not distracted the way I was, candidly, in 2016. So I, I think his ability to keep the eyes on the prize gave a major speech about the economy. Uh, last week. Now he's preparing a major plan on childcare and other workplace issues that has nothing to do with Trump. Mm-hmm. It actually affects the lives of working moms and dads. So he seems to be focused on the right things. I'm very impressed with how he's conducting his campaign. Obviously, I'd love to see him out, but you can't press the flesh during a pandemic. You just can't. So he's doing, I think, exactly what what he ought to be doing.
0: So do you think that um, – because you talk about the what's going on with, with blue-collar America and farmers. Uh, I said that we would get back to this because I think it's important. I bring it up all the time because farmers in, in those states overwhelmingly overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump thinking that he was going to – help them Uh, again. um, It's the economy, stupid, which uh, you and Carville and those guys in in the Bill Clinton campaign came up with brilliantly that strategy. And you wrote a book called It's Still the Economy, Stupid and a chapter in your current book, (laughs) Um, because these are things that uh, impact people directly. And farmers are getting destroyed under this administration in ways that I don't think if this had happened under a Democrat, they would ever that Republicans would never let them get away with this. They would be hammering home with 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 campaign commercials and uh, committee hearings with the pictures and all that of how right. our farmers are being destroyed and being bankrupted because of this administration's policies.
1: Um, That's right. And I think this has been a, a, a place the Democrats have been lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, some Democrats. Certainly not me because I'm not a big brain. Some Democrats seem more comfortable in the faculty lounge than the factory floor or the farm fields. Uh, I I literally am calling you from a farm. My my wife and I have a small farm in Virginia. We spend a a great deal of time out here. Right now we're growing corn and hay. Last year it was soybeans. Nice. I'm not a farmer. I'm not a farmer. I'm a pretender. I'm a poser. But I love rural America, and I grew up in a small town in Texas. And my party, in some way, some of us have lost their roots and And so they they still, you see some democratic elites just talking down to uh, farmers and and rural uh, rural folks, it, it, almost pushing them toward Mr. Trump. But I think that Biden has an opportunity, not a farm boy at all, but a guy who's in touch with um, with working Americans. and to to make the case, even before the crash, farm income was, Plummeting. Even before the crash, farm bankruptcies were soaring. 2018 was, was uh, uh, the lowest income farmers have had in over a decade. Um, and most tragically, and I point this out in the book, farm suicides are up. Mm-hmm. Difficult statistic to crack because – it's not an official statistic, but we know this uh, from reporting and from anecdotes and from uh, farm advocacy organizations. I'm very proud. I, when I finished this chapter about rural America, I actually sent it to Willie Nelson, who I know because I'm an Austin guy. <laughs> and I, Willie, in addition to being one of America's great artists, has been for four decades an advocate for family farmers.
0: Right. Farm Aid and, in 1985. That was Willie Nelson.
1: And it's still going strong. And so – and Willie read that, and he liked it and actually endorsed the book. He said, if you want to know what's going on in the world, read Paul's book or something like that. It was – because my party let these farmers feel like we'd abandoned them. Trump then took advantage of them, and I think he has used and betrayed them in the same way that he did all those uh, dishwashers at his casinos or the plumbing contractors in his buildings. But Democrats need to go and make that case. Uh, I'm not one – who thinks Democrats should write off rural America and only focus on the cities and the suburbs? I, I I think the presidency is unique and it has to stitch the whole country together. And candidates, even though they lost, I loved that Beto O'Rourke in Texas and Stacey Abrams in Georgia each went to every single county in their state. I love that. Mm-hmm. You, if you're a Democrat, you need to know what the hell's going on in rural America. And again, I hate that Joe can't Camp campaign, but I want my Democrats to reach out and talk to those folks. Uh, You know, the worst thing that could happen is you might learn something. You don't have to agree with them on everything. Right. But but they could make a a hell of a case to rural America that Trump has used and betrayed them. And and there are Democrats who are doing this. They are. Uh, There's a a group I have advised, I've helped called American Bridge, is running ads.  … Of, … Of, of farmers in rural America, uh, blue-collar workers, particularly in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, the three states that's won the election of Trump …… and interviewing people who were for Trump and now believe that he has betrayed them. And if we tell those farmer stories and tell those factory workers' stories and those steel workers' and secretaries' stories … Democrats, they'll be back in the game in rural America.
0: That's exactly what they need to do on every level. It goes back to what you, th- what the theme throughout your entire book, and you always go back to it in the book. You're fired, where you say it's a make it about the voters' lives. That's why you know I'm a senior advisor for the Lincoln Project, and we're getting a lot of attention because um, Rick Wilson and and the ad geniuses over there are pulling no punches going after Donald Trump on all kinds of ways. But one of the uh, some of the ads we troll him and make fun of him because we know that irks him. But some of the ads that we're making are also talking to people about, is your life any better? This is what he's doing. We We had a recent ad called Walls where it shows it just shows. Yeah, Trump is building a wall. And guess what? That if you were to take all of the people who have passed away under Uh, On Donald Trump's watch from COVID-19, you could build 66 miles of Trump's wall with coffins. And it shows a visual uh, along the border of coffins with the numbers uh, counting up with Trump. You know, stuff like that. Like, that's a really emotionally powerful visual. Another ad that we did that got a lot of attention was the Morning in America ad, which is a play on Ronald Reagan's, one of the most famous ads he ever had, where his was more about it's mourning in America from a positive perspective. We changed right. it around to mourning as in M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G and show the destruction that Donald Trump's America is facing because of his incompetence. It's a perfect example. I hope that Democrats would start to do more of that because I think when people see how it impacts them, it that kind of wakes them up, I think, I hope. <laughs>
1: Absolutely, and I think your Lincoln Projects ads are phenomenal. They're just terrific. Well, thank you. Um, I will and, pass the message. It, <laughs> well, and, and I, I look. I used to, I used to get beat in campaigns in Texas against John Weaver, who's a fellow Texan and a big Republican and a big brain, yep. a great guy. One of the co-founders, um, yeah. right? He's one of the co-founders. Um, Steve Schmidt, Bill Crystal, you and I—we've been on the opposite side of political divides all our lives, but those were always about ideas and about policy. I, I never believed, I was a strong opponent of President Bush, but I never believed he was a bad man. I had the honor of knowing him. Mm-hmm. And and I know him to be a, a very good man, I think, in bad ideas, but that's a different debate. It's right. a very different debate. And that's what the right. Lincoln Project is doing is creating what psychologists call a permission structure to allow people to overcome their cognitive dissonance. You know, voting for president, it's a powerful act of self-definition, and you know, of course, corporate America knows that. That's why I used to run ads that say things like, "I'm a Bud Man,"
2: Like <laughs> right? Not just mm-hmm. like
1: Budweiser's delicious beer and it, it makes you lightheaded. It's, "I'm a Bud Man." That's the kind of person I am. When you vote for president, you are you are really defining yourself. And so, to unhinge someone from that, to decouple them from that choice, it takes a lot. And so, when you at Lincoln Project run ads in the first person where people say, look, this is not the guy we thought he was. We were misled or here's what he's done in your life. Like those heartbreaking numbers of coffins. Right. Um, think, think about, you know, think about that wall on our national mall. My, my father-in-law, who is now resting in honor at Arlington Cemetery, was a war hero in that Vietnam War. He was a remarkable man and was my hero. Um, That wall has 58,000 names on it, and it took 20 years of bitter combat, and we've already lost 140,000, more than twice the number of people we lost in Vietnam in two decades. Unbelievable. And we didn't have to. uh, Trump didn't cause the virus. The virus is not his fault. But he wasn't responsible for the virus, but he was responsible for the response. Correct. Correct. And you, you all at Lincoln Project are doing such a good job of holding him to account for that, and reminding people how high the stakes are. Anyway, I think their stuff has been great. It's th- it's really terrific. Well, th- and it's it's wonderful. It's kind of thrilling to be on the same side with you and these really really <laughs> smart people. And one day, I look forward to going back to fighting about whatever Me, taxes or
0: you know what. Me too. So- Me too. I've said that often that I um, you know I can't wait to go back to the day where we can argue over. Uh, you know, the cuts to entitlements and uh, what you talk about which, in a very funny chapter um, <clears throat> about Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security as something else that we should go after Trump about because that's important to people and he wants to cut it. But, um, you know, I can't wait to have those policy debates again where we're not arguing over whether the health of our republic is at stake or not or whether our okay. enemies are, uh, you know, influencing our elections and the rule of law is is uh, under assault from the president of the United States like I can't wait till those debates we can have those debates again on policy but until then we're keeping our foot on the gas through November 3rd until January 20th make sure that Joe Biden is sworn in as the next president of the United States to help end this nightmare um I wondered before we go, um, and thank you so much you 've been so generous with your time. You know I could talk to you all day uh, I wanted to do you, you talk about because this is something else that 's come up in recently in the news that Trump is focusing in on that I think Listeners and voters need to realize we cannot take our eye off the ball with this. It's voter suppression. It's compromising yeah. the election. Trump, in a Fox News Sunday interview recently with Chris Wallace, basically said that he would not accept the the election results if he loses. Um, he would not commit to that, which scares the bejesus out of a lot of us. Uh, what do you say? What is your, you know, and you talk about this in your book about what Russia's doing and the president's response to this. You even talk about how Bill Maher has been the only like real Paul Revere on this, where he's like, "Uh, people, we need to pay attention to the systems and the institutions and voting and all of that because Trump is going to undermine them. What are we gonna do about it? What should voters look for? What should we do about this?
1: Well, in addition to Bill, who, by the way, in 2017, the first summer, the summer of 2017, I was out in L.A. I had dinner with Bill. He said that. He said, look, my problem with Trump, and I was screaming about the tax cut as if it were a normal presidency and we're just going to fight about taxes. He said, no, Trump is an autocrat wannabe. He wants to shut down civil liberties and civil rights. And Mar was the Paul Revere on this. And, you know, I know he's a comedian, but he's also a pretty trenchant observer of the political scene. Um, uh, there's, there's a man named Mark Elias who I quote at length in the book. Mark is, I think, the premier voting rights lawyer in America. He's been all across the country filing lawsuits to defend Americans' rights to vote. What Mark says is volunteer to be a poll worker. Your listeners, I know your demo. They're young, they're smart, they're healthy. And it's a real risk to be a poll worker. The majority of poll workers in America are over 60 and a huge percentage are over 75. These are uh, our most vulnerable citizens to COVID. And so if your listeners are willing to sign up and they have to put their partisan hat aside while they're working, obviously. But to, just to go in to help run the election, just sit there at the, at the tables, check people in, give them their ballots, show them how to work the machine, whatever it is, um, that would help enormously. Because if we don't have enough poll workers, we don't have enough polling, right? We don't have enough voting. People will line up for miles and miles, and we don't want that, um, uh, preferably vote by mail. The, the president, Trump himself, votes by mail. It is very safe, very secure, and, and has been used extensively in a number of states, including Utah, where it has had no discernible liberal bias. Um, they have very well-run elections in Utah, and it's a very safe way to vote, and I really encourage people to, to use it. But if, if you're willing or able and you're listening uh, to uh, Honestly Speaking with Tara, I really hope you'll think about signing up to be a, a poll worker.
0: I I hope so. And I don't want people to, you know, obviously, if you can't sign up as a poll worker, you can't do that. Be sure to hold your local election officials accountable for the way they're running their elections. And to see why you know, whether your congressman or senator is voting to fund uh, your state and local help fund state and local elections to help protect them against the cyber warfare that Russia and others are trying to inflict as we speak right now, um, make sure that they're doing the right things to protect voting because there should be no reason why anyone in this country who's honest about an, about a democracy should want less people voting unless you're worried that it's going to impact your your election. And that is undemocratic. It's bad for the republic, and Trump knows it. But he doesn't give a damn. damn. Um, and before we close, I just wanted to read one last passage from your book, because I think it, it sums up kind of um, not only the tone of the book, but the strategy that that I'm hoping that the Biden campaign continues to use and that the the independent PACs that are pro Biden out there use this playbook. <clears throat> but you're on page 131. You say, take a page from the GOP, attack Trump's image of strength portray him as the weakling he is, a spray tanning, cross cross combing, country clubbing, bone-spurring wussy who wets his pants every time (laughs) Vladimir Putin snaps his fingers. (laughs) This is so Paul Begala, folks. Instead of reinforcing the image of Trump as a tough guy, shatter the myth. Trump says he's a tough guy. He says if he gets hit, he hits back 10 times harder. America is under attack and Trump is cowering under the bed, or worse, helping the foreign punk who's attacking us. As we say in Texas, Trump is all hairspray and no cojones. (laughs) (laughs) Paul Begala, I adore you. Your book is You're Fired. It's out August 4th. The perfect guide to beating Donald Trump, my favorite Democrat. True story, when I was at Harvard for my fellowship in the, in the spring, well, before it all went to hell because of COVID, we had an exercise where we had to, we were with our students and the other fellows in the group and we had to list who was your favorite person of the opposite political persuasion. And my answer was Paul Begala. And if the kids in my oh, study group were here, they could co-sign that because, <laughs> I, <laughs> because I said it. And one of the girls in my in my group, she's uh, now graduated. I adore her. She was my chief of staff. Her name is Kate Krolicki. She's also now a second lieutenant in the Air Force. She graduated oh, wow. Air Force ROTC. She's amazing, absolutely amazing. I adore her. She knows your son, Charlie who I absolutely oh love also. Yeah. Who so. you were so kind to. You,
1: Charlie uh, uh, got his mother's brains and goes to, just graduated from the University of Virginia, and when you came to speak at UVA, you were so kind to him.
0: Oh, I just love him. He's a sharp kid and he's a sweetheart, a lot nicer than you were at that age, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> a lot That's more for humble. Sure. Yes. <laughs> for those who don't know, Paul and I rib each other all the time because the first time I had Paul on the, on the podcast, I joked with him about what a jerk I thought he was in the 90s because because he came to speak at gw when i was vice chair of the college republicans and the college democrats brought him in and he was very arrogant about how they just beat our george uh george w bush hw bush and have you now bill clinton in and it was what a great victory it was and I was very upset with him about it and you admitted that you were kind of an arrogant jerk back
1: then <laughs> yes you know uh, uh, the good lord and bad fortune have a way of humbling me and uh, I believe me I have learned
0: <laughs> no I can say you have indeed I absolutely adore you your son I have yet to meet your lovely wife for the rest of your sons but um, hopefully when things get back to some semblance of normalcy we, we can all get together and break bread and uh, cheer to a biden victory in november
1: oh Tara, you're the best i love you thanks for having
0: me on thank you paul get his book you're fired it's a great what do you see the graphic it's got a uh, garbage can with a red tie coming out of it very apropos you're fired the perfect guide to beating donald trump by my good friend paul bagala thanks paul thanks tara Again, another big thank you to my pal, my buddy, Paul Begala. Um, Be sure to check out his book. It's it's actually really good. It's super entertaining and 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 a good, easy read. And uh, that's it for this week's edition. Stay tuned for the next episode and stay safe and wear a mask.